Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Hindrances of Faith, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Listen to this. Paul telling Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. I want you to write down in the comment section, there is a fight of faith. Or just write the fight of faith. The fight of faith. There is a fight of faith. A lot of people, they claim to be always fighting the devil or fighting demons or, you know, I'm fighting sin or I'm fighting. You're actually not called to fight sin. The Bible says that God's given you power to crucify sin. And uh, uh, on top of that, the scripture says that Jesus has put away sin by his death on that cross. So sin's no longer even an issue. Sin has been defeated through what Christ did. The devil also has been defeated through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Colossians 2.14, the Bible says, Jesus publicly disarmed principalities and powers and made a public show of them openly, having triumphed over them at the cross. Jesus defeated the devil. Uh, I like what John Osteen always says, and I've adapted it into my own, adopted it into my own speech and my own conversation He would always say that God is my father, Jesus is my elder brother, and the devil is of no relation at all. The devil is of no relation at all, meaning the devil's a non-issue for the New Testament believer. Why do I say that? Because you have a lot of ministries, all they ever do is talk about the devil. I'm not against talking about the devil and his tactics and his strategies. But if there's any preaching that when you hear about the devil... It puts in you or generates in you a fear or it generates in you some respect for him, then that's not good Bible preaching. The Bible does not bring any respect to the devil. The Bible says several things about the devil. One, he's been cast out of heaven and there's no more place found for him in heaven. Two, he's defeated and disarmed. And three, he has an eternal fate that he can't res- he cannot come back from. Jesus said, the ruler of this world cometh, but he has nothing in me. And in John chapter 16, it says that the, the, the ruler of this world has already been judged. His judgment, his condemnation is sure. And just as sure as his condemnation is the believer's dominion over him. Jesus raised us up with him, made us to be seated in him in heavenly places far above principalities and powers and every devil and name that is named in heaven, hell, and on earth. Well, not in heaven, there's no place for them, but in heaven or on earth and in hell. So that being fact and scripturally factual, why is... Paul here saying there's still a fight. What's the fight of faith? The fight of faith is not against the devil and not against sin. What's the fight of faith? If there's a fight of faith, that means that there must be, and get this, there must be enemies of faith. There has to be enemies of faith. If there is a fight of faith, there must be enemies of my faith. Realize this. The devil knows since he's disarmed, 
If he's disarmed, and the Bible says he has no more authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. So if the devil has no more authority, then what does he do to keep believers bound? He targets their faith because he knows that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. So if faith is the victory that overcomes the world, then he seeks to uh, target and attack the foundation of your faith. Because if your faith fails, your victory is no longer sure or certain. If your faith fails, that's why Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed so that your faith would not fail. So because the devil knows that faith is what brings victory to the believer, he has set up certain hindrances so as to prevent the believer from moving forward in this life of faith. So identifying what these hindrances are. See, this is what it means when it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places and, and rulers of darkness. It, it means that we need to identify their tactics. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, I believe it is, we are not ignorant of the devil's devices lest we should be taken advantage by him. We're not ignorant of how the devil operates lest we should be taken advantage by him. So, we need to identify these tactics he uses in his attempt to hinder our steps towards rising out of the perilous pit of unbelief and into the victory of faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I want to let you know, there, there is hope. You don't have, if you feel like you're a person who I have a hard time believing and I feel like all these enemies of faith have just... Uh, uh, bull rushed me and I feel helpless and I feel hopeless today as we identify these enemies of faith not only is a light bulb going to go on but God's going to put a strength and a grace in you to overcome every single one of these obstacles you will have Joshua type faith you will have the spirit of faith in your generation when the 10 spies are speaking that it cannot be. You'll never have it. You'll, that's impossible. Things can never change. You'll be like Joshua and you'll be like Caleb that rise up having overcome these hindrances of faith. And you will be the one that says, no, if the Lord be for us, we can by all means take possession of the promises of God in Jesus mighty name. You will be a giant of faith in your generation. I want I want you to write that in the comment section. I am a giant of faith. But make a faith confession today. I am a giant of faith. I am a giant of faith. You know, there's a lot of people who they pride themselves on being prayer warriors. But you can be a prayer warrior and pray in unbelief 100% of the time and you're just fighting you're fighting nothing. You're just fighting the wall that you're praying to. Prayer warriors oftentimes are actually prayer warriors. Their prayers are actually just filled with worry and doubt and unbelief. They're not praying in faith. They're prayer warriors, not prayer warriors, prayer warriors, in that they're worrying the entire time they pray. They have seen a lot of prayer warriors that don't make anything of themselves in life and aren't much help. But I've never seen a faith warrior, and I've never seen a giant of faith suffer or be harassed or be under the foot of the devil faith giants are always on top the bible says in deuteronomy 28 you will always be 
ahead and never beneath. You will always be the head and you will never be the tail. A faith giant rises to the top. That's just how it is. The Bible says that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Through faith, Hebrews eleven thirty three. they subdued kingdoms, subdued kingdoms, Kingdoms, including the kingdom of hell that rises up against you, can be subdued through this power called faith alive in the believer. The Bible says that through faith they obtained promises. The promises of the Bible can be obtained, acquired by faith. Through faith, the Bible says they became valiant in battle. Hallelujah. Valiant in Bible in battle. That means they rose to the occasion. That means they, they shined in the time that it was that, that um, it was required for them to shine. The Bible says through faith, out of weakness became strong. Faith can take you out of a place of weakness and frailty and into a place of strength. You shall be a faith warrior in your generation in Jesus' name. Whether the devil likes it or not, the same devil that couldn't stop you from coming on this stream and getting this word intake today is the same devil that cannot stop you from leaving the perilous pit of unbelief and and stepping in to the place of more than a conqueror through faith in Christ Jesus. All right, let's get through these seven hindrances of faith that I've written down. Number one, we fight the good fight of faith, meaning there's enemies of faith. Enemy of faith number one is not understanding what it means to believe. What it truly means to believe. Because there's some people, and you've spent two, three years in Christianity, you'll hear someone say this. I have all the faith in the world, but I don't know why things aren't changing for me. I have all the faith, they say, I have all the faith in the world, but I don't understand how come things haven't turned in my situation. I want to let you in on something today. They are... They, 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 when they say I have all the faith in the world, they are not lying. You can have all the faith in the world in your heart. But faith is a noun. Faith, even in the Greek, is a noun, pistis. Faith is a noun. A corpse can be a noun. A dead body can be a noun. Uh, an inanimate object can be a noun. Faith is a noun. The Bible says that faith without works is dead. And so faith by itself, if it carries no works, it's dead. Faith is a noun, but get this. Believe is a verb. Believing is a verb. It requires action. The Bible says all things are possible to him that has faith not just faith alone, to him that believes. So believing is actually the action you take provoked by the faith you have. And you need to make a distinction between the two. There is faith and then there's believing. You cannot believe without faith there. You cannot genuinely believe without faith there. But on the flip side, you can have faith and still not believe. Where do we see this? Even the demons, the Bible says, have faith that God is who he says he is. They have faith that their eternal fate is set 
and they're doomed to destruction. They have faith in all these things, but they tremble. Their actions do not line up with their faith. You don't see demons coming before the throne of God and pleading for mercy, although even if they did, there's no mercy because their fate is sealed. It's one thing to have faith stored up in your heart. It's another thing to believe to the point of action. What do I mean by this? You have people that know scripture. They know the scripture. Well, I know that's in the Bible, and I believe that. No, you have faith in that. You have faith that those things are correct and factual, and that they are indeed found in the Bible. You may have faith that the Bible is the inspired word of God. You may have faith that the Bible is inerrant and has no errors in it and it is inspired or God breathed and it is profitable. You have faith. You may even know the scripture. You may even quote the word of God. But if that quotation is not backed by action, then it is characterized and defined James chapter 2 as dead faith that has no works and dead faith produces zero results. Dr. A.B. Simpson, who I believe founded the Foursquare, not Foursquare, um, uh, what's that organization? Missionary Alliance Church. I believe he's the founder of the Missionary Alliance Church. And Dr. A.B. Simpson talks about his testimony. He had an incurable heart condition and doctors had diagnosed it. I don't know how old he was, probably in his 40s. And he was going to die. He was not given much time to live. His heart was failing. So with this in mind, he took a sabbatical from preaching and speaking and traveling. And he went to a little cabin that he had, I believe it was in Massachusetts. And he took time to go to this cabin with his Bible and a notebook. And he began to read through the Gospels and through the New Testament in order to ascertain whether divine healing was indeed for today or whether it was not for today. And he went on this explorative study of the Word of God. This is amazing. This is something, when you find yourself in a roadblock or in a tight situation and you don't understand why things are happening or there's no change in your situation or you've been given some sort of report that has rubbed you the wrong way, it's challenged you and you feel like you're at a roadblock or in a gridlock and you want to break free from that, do what A.B. Simpson did. Don't complain. Don't type on Facebook, keep me in prayer. Don't go out and, and, and call your pastor and say, Pastor, I don't, you know, I'm not saying you can't call your pastor. I'm just saying this not the best thing to do you know what the best thing to do is is doctor what it dr ab simpson did he took his bible he took his notebook he went into a cabin in the woods somewhere totally disconnected from society opened it up and went on an explorative study of the word of god in order to find a solution to the problem that he was facing and so here he is in that cabin in massachusetts and he's He's reading through the Gospels and he gets to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16 and 17, which says that at evening they brought to Jesus all those who were sick with various diseases and torments and he and those who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirit with his word and he healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was prophesied by the Isaiah the prophet that he himself bore our sicknesses and he himself carried our pains. So he sees Jesus is healing physical sicknesses and disease. So for all those people that say, well, how many of you know Isaiah 53? You know, let me do it like this. 
How many of you know Isaiah 53, when it talks about healing and by his stripes were healed and he bore sickness, it's talking about a spiritual sickness. No, it's not talking about a spiritual sickness. Jesus this was not healing their spiritual sicknesses. He was healing their physical sicknesses. They had diseases, ailments, chronic pains, and he healed them all. Yeah, nobody's safe now. Religious spirits are not safe anymore. With my new machine, I will dominate the religious world. No, I'm kidding. But um, this machine is going to, we're going to have a lot more fun on these broadcasts. He wasn't healing spiritual sicknesses. It's funny how Matthew, documenting what Jesus did at that particular time, he correlates that event of Jesus healing sick people with what Isaiah prophesied, saying that he'd bear our sicknesses. If it was a spiritual sickness, Isaiah would not, Matthew would not have connected the two scriptures together. Yet he does. He bore our sickness and carried our pains. So Isaiah 53 is not talking about spiritual sickness. And I'll say this again. I've said it before. You were not spiritually sick. Get this in your head. If you think that you were spiritually sick and Jesus came to heal you of your spiritual sickness, then you don't understand the total depravity that we were in when we were confined and and imprisoned, imprisoned by sin. It was total depravity. I believe in depravity. I believe in that we were, there was nothing good in us. There was nothing good in our mouth. The, the Bible says we had all turned aside. We had together become corrupt. We were totally depraved from, from God and from good. So we weren't spiritually sick, needing healing. We were spiritually dead and needed resurrection. Hence why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you, when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, he made alive together with Christ Jesus, for by grace through faith are you saved. So Jesus, Paul, um, sorry, Matthew connects the two, the two things. He connects the event of Jesus healing people to Isaiah's prophecy that he himself would carry our sickness. So A.B. Simpson sees this in Matthew chapter 8. You know what happens? He has a revelation, the same one that I had when I got healed. Jesus took, he took, he himself took my sickness, carried my pains. He began to write down in his notebook, in that study in Massachusetts. From this day forward, I believe Jesus already dealt with the sickness problem. That it is the divine right and privilege for every born-again believer to receive divine healing and appropriate it by faith. He said and covenanted with God, from today, God, I receive your strength, I receive your healing, and I covenant with you that from now, I will take the rest of my life to preach this gospel and not, and not ignore or not... Uh, neglect to talk about this healing part of the gospel. And he said, I'm going to give my life to letting this generation know that they too can be healed and I will help others with the same revelation that I've received from you. And he did that. So, several months later, he's invited to preach a preacher's convention. And in the afternoon after he preached, which he had preached on Matthew 8, 16 and 17 that day, they asked him, can you come? We're going up to the mountain. We're going to go hiking and we're going to climb this mountain. And at first, his initial thought was, I'm not going to go climb this mountain because I was diagnosed with a heart disease or a heart condition. 
And then he quickly corrected himself and he said, if I truly believe, if I truly believe that God's healed me, I'm going to go and climb this mountain. This is on point number one, hindrance of faith, not understanding what it means to believe. A.B. Simpson did not just have faith. He proved that he had faith by believing and acting on what God had said. So he told the people, I'm going to come and I'm going to climb that mountain. As he was going up the mountain, he began to feel heart symptoms. And immediately, he took every thought captive to the obedience of the word of God. And he began to cast down those thoughts. And he began to counter with the word of God. And he ended up climbing the mountain. The heart palpitations or whatever symptoms he was feeling totally vanished. And he never had another symptom from that day onward. He won the victory by faith in acting on what God had said. He ended up writing down in, in his book, which is, um, I forget, the, I think it's called The ABCs of Divine Healing. He writes down in his book, most people lose their healing over a counterattack than anything else. See, he had a counterattack. He was climbing the mountain. He hadn't had symptoms for months. He starts climbing the mountain. He starts to have these symptoms come back in his heart. And the devil counterattacked, but then he recountered back. When the devil talks, talk back. Don't keep your mouth shut. Don't keep silent. When the devil tries to mouth off and say, do you really think you're healed? Do you really think that God heard your prayer? Do you really think your family is going to be any different this year than it was last year? When he talks, talk back. When Jesus was in the wilderness and the devil talked, Jesus didn't sit there with his eyes squinting and just saying, I rebuke you, I rebuke you, I rebuke you. He talked back. Satan, it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he began to speak the scriptures. And he spoke the word. A.B. Simpson did the same thing. And he got the same victory. Why? Because the devil understands one language. And that's the language of the word of God. So, you have a lot of people that say, I've got all the faith in the world. I don't know why things are happening. Because they've not mixed their faith with believing Real Bible believing always produces results. So if results are lacking, you can know that there's a deficiency in your action of faith, in your believing. John chapter 9, you have the man that's blind, born blind. Jesus sees him there and he rubs clay that he had made with his spit on the ground. And he rubbed the clay and anointed his eyes. And he says, go now and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the blind man could have easily have said, I've got faith that I'm going to see one day. Because I heard, I heard that this Jesus, he could have easily have had faith that his eyes would come open eventually because he said, I heard this Jesus has gone around opening up the eyes of the blind and he touched my eyes and he told me to go and wash. Man, I, I know I have faith one day my eyes are going to be open. He would have had faith and stayed blind his entire life. You know where his blindness was turned to sight? It was not just in him having the faith. It was in him believing to the point of him going to wash in the pool of Siloam. He could have had faith that his eyes would come open eventually. But unless he had his faith was coupled with believing, he would have never received his sight. When you are believing, you're simply acting on the word of promise. That's what it is. Believing is acting on the word and faith is what causes or propels you for action. Do you understand? I hope this is making things make very much sense to you today. 
so that there's little confusion. 2 Kings 5, you have Naaman the leper comes to Elisha and says, make me clean. Elijah says, go and dip in the pool or in the river Jordan. He complains. What do you mean go and dip? I thought you would just come out and speak something over me. Make it very simple. And he got angry. His servant peeped up and said, wouldn't you have done something? If he had told you to do something difficult, if he had told you to jump through seven hoops, wouldn't you have done it? How much more if he just tells you go and wash? Go and, go into dip, go and dip in the river Jordan. See, Naaman had faith enough to actually get to Elijah's house. Elisha's house. Naaman had the faith to arrive and invite himself over to Elisha's house. He had faith. You can't say Naaman didn't have faith. Faith brought him to Elisha's house. But he didn't believe to the point of action whereby his miracle would be unlocked. Mark chapter 2. You have a guy, a guy who's lame, never walked. Some of his friends must have been hearing Jesus preach about healing because they had faith to go and get the paralytic man and bring them to where Jesus was. When they get to the house, there's no more room. Faith brought them to the house. Faith drew them to that house. They see there's no more room. Most people, they would have just said, I'll come back next week. But they didn't just have faith. They believed to the point where they sawed the man's roof open and let down their friend before Jesus. And the Bible says Jesus seen their faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus seen their faith because their faith provoked belief and their believing brought action and their action was visible. Jesus seen their faith said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. Acts chapter 14, 7 through 10. And Paul is at Lystra preaching the gospel. A man sitting there, a cripple who had never walked, hearing Paul preach. Paul, seeing that he had faith to be healed, he saw there was something that was evident. I have all the faith in the world. What are you doing? See, faith is not just believing God. Faith is believing God to the point of action. Faith is acting on God's word to prove that you believe him. That's a great definition. Faith is acting on God's word to prove that you believe him. Faith by itself is dead. Faith that is genuine will provoke you to action that proves that you believe God. Action is a proof of faith. If your faith lacks proof, it's fake. It is fake. Those men, that man that was lame, sitting at Lystra, I'm sure you must have, Paul must have seen him trying to get up by himself. Paul might have seen him, you know, obviously Paul's gospel included healing because why did he have faith to be healed? So anyone that says the gospel is about just you know, your sins being forgiven. Don't believe those guys that talk about divine healing, healings in the next life. Well, obviously Paul's gospel included healing because why did the guy have faith to be healed? He's preaching the gospel and the man has faith to be healed. I mean, some people need to read their Bibles a little closer. Why did he have faith to be healed? If faith comes by hearing the word of God, then what was Paul preaching out of the word of God that produced faith for him to be healed other than divine healing from, 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 from what Jesus did? So he had faith to be healed. And Paul saw the faith. What was he doing? Maybe he was trying to get up. 
Maybe he was saying something like, enough is enough. I'm getting up. I refuse to stay a paralytic another day in my life. What was he doing? Something obviously was evidently manifesting in his action so that Paul saw that he had faith to be healed. And he said, stand up on your feet and walk. So number one, don't, number one, enemy of faith is not understanding what it means to believe. Don't just say God is a healer. Get the oil out and anoint yourself and pray the prayer of faith. Don't just say God is a God of abundance. Get your seed out and start sowing towards that abundance. Don't just say God is a God of revival. Get your butt out into the highways and byways and start to preach the gospel that would bring revival. Don't just dream about what God's called you to do. So many Christians are walking around telling everybody the great dreams they have and all that God's called them to do. The disciples didn't hear Jesus call them. And then they just get together and say, oh, praise the Lord. Hey, they didn't get, go back to their family. It's not like Matthew got the call of God and he went back to his family and he said, hey guys, you'll never believe it. You know, you hear that guy that's been going around healing the sick. People have been touching him and like issues of blood for 12 years have been healed and blind eyes have been coming open. I even heard him raise someone from the dead the other day. You know that guy? He called me to travel with him. Well, you're going to go? No, I don't know. But he's called me. I'm called. Hallelujah. I'm called. I'm elected by his grace. Praise the Lord. There's so many Christians. They just pride themselves in the call. You believe that God's called you to a great dream? Called you to a business to open up? Called you to a ministry? Quit talking about it and take the first step towards it. I believe God's going to give me a platform on YouTube of a, a million people. Oh, really? Well, what's your YouTube channel? I haven't opened one up yet. Great. You're going to do a lot of great things. I haven't even opened one up yet. I believe God's going to give me a multi-million dollar business. What are you doing about it? Well, you know, I don't know if it's the right time. I don't. You know, a lot of people that use it's not the right time, it's just a scapegoat to get out of doing what they know they have to do. Could you imagine Elijah gets to Elisha and puts his mantle on him? In first, uh, it'd be in 1 Kings 19. And Elisha just turns to Elijah and says, thank you. When the time is right, I will join you. He would have never joined Elijah. Some, we would have been reading about someone else with another name, preferably another name. I've always like been very irritated by the fact that it's Elijah and Elisha because it's so confusing. Whenever you're preaching, Elijah, Elisha, it sounds the same thing. But Elisha answered the call. And what did he do? He didn't just go back to his family and say, Hey, family, do you know the prophet? The prophet that's been challenging Ahab. The prophet that's called rain from heaven that ended this drought. The prophet that allowed us to get back to our farming. That prophet, oh, God bless him. That prophet put his mantle on me. Look, it even has his initials on the tag, on the mantle. This is truly his mantle. Well, you know what that means, Elisha, right? You're going to follow him. Oh, in, you know, in God's time, you know. No, what did he do? He went back to his house. He burnt his oxen. He made a great feast. He burnt all his stock. He burnt all his equipment. He said, I ain't coming back to this town. I'm called to higher things. I'm moving forward with God. Faith is a moving force. Faith is a driving force. Faith is a living force. Faith is a force that, a force that compels action. Don't 
tell me you have faith and you haven't done anything about it. Faith will produce actionable steps towards the desired outcome. Hallelujah. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, like Romans 1 says, you are receiving grace for obedience to the faith from this day onward. You're not just going to be an idle talker. The Bible says empty talk or idle talk only brings poverty. From today, your confession of faith shall be back with actions of faith and you shall see the glory of God while you're yet in the land of the living. You will not miss your calling in Jesus' name. You will not be a dreamer only. You will be like Joseph. Yes, he had a dream, but he moved towards the dream. You from today onward will take steps towards the fulfillment of the great assignment of heaven on your life and good luck to any devil in hell because when a man is on a mission of faith, you lower your shoulder in and you can bulldoze yourself through any obstacle. That'll be your story in Jesus' mighty name. If you believe that shout amen in the comment section hallelujah number two enemy of faith or hindrance of faith wrong confession so actions are important and just confessing it by itself will do you no good but confession is important and equally as important as action i've said this often on this broadcast you cannot take prosperity steps and speak poverty and arrive at prosperity. And the opposite is true. You cannot speak prosperity words and take poverty steps and arrive at prosperity. But I'm going to focus on wrong confession, confession today. You cannot take, you cannot speak death and arrive at healing. You cannot speak failure and arrive at success. You cannot speak defeat and arrive at victory your mouth must line up with the word of god for it to produce for you mark eleven twenty three. let me read it mark 11 and verse 23 jesus teaching us what faith is this is jesus's definition of faith have faith in god for assuredly i say to you Whoever says, so he's talking about the operation of faith here. And he says, whoever says to this mountain. So faith says to the mountain. Faith does not complain about the mountain. Faith does not worry about the mountain. Faith does not even ignore the mountain. Faith says to the mountain. Be removed, cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says, there's a second saying, will be done. And Jesus finishes off, for he will have whatever he says. In this passage, the word believe is mentioned once. The word says or a derivative of says, is mentioned three times. You know what that says? That means there should be three times emphasis on the words that you speak than just the emphasis on believing. Kenneth Hagin, actually, in reading this scripture, the Lord spoke to him, I want you to preach three times on confession to every time you preach on faith, just by itself, or believing. 
Because the emphasis is on saying here. In the operation of faith, believing needs to be there. Not doubting in your heart needs to be there. But three times Jesus says, says. That's right, Sharon. Watch your words. Your words actually reveal or reflect the level of faith that you have. Your words are a revelation of your faith that you have stored up in your heart. There's a lot of people who say, I've got all the faith in the world, but listen to them in their conversation. They prove that they do not indeed have all the faith in the world. Because I've said it before, faith is not just believing God can do anything. Faith is having located his promise you have a certainty or you are fully persuaded that what God has promised, I have the conviction that he's too faithful to go without fulfilling that thing in my life. Hallelujah. Hebrews 11.1 1 in the Amplified Version says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and it is the conviction of things not yet seen. Faith is a conviction said it the other day, I said there's people who have convictions of sin. And conviction of sin is good. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just give you conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit, when you read the Word of God, will give you a conviction of the reality of these things that we read about. Hallelujah. I'm convicted that healing belongs to me because of what the Word says. I'm convicted that prosperity belongs to me because of what the word says. I'm convicted that he that began a good work in me will bring it to, to pass because of what the word says in Philippians 1.6. I'm convicted that there's not one sin separating me from the holy God because he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I have these convictions. Hallelujah. And those convictions produce new confessions. Man, I feel the unction. These convictions produce new confessions in my life. God values your confession. You can take all the faith actions in the world, but if your confession betrays your action, your life will be filled with frustration. If your confession betrays your actions, your life will be filled with frustration. Your confession must line up with your action. God values confession. Matter of fact, he values it so much. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, he says, you can't even be saved without your confession. For with the confession of the mouth comes salvation. Romans 10, 10. With the confession of the mouth comes salvation. Imagine an individual, and there are many of them, unfortunately, who confess that Jesus is Lord, but they don't change anything in their lives. There's no repentance. All they do is confess. You would say your confession is faith, fake. So I'm, this is all to say, your action has to line up with your confession for it to be authentic faith. Hebrews 10, 23. The Bible says this, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith without wavering. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith without wavering. You're to hold fast your confession. Enemy of faith number two, wrong 
confession. Wavering confession. It's easy to come out of a broadcast like this and feel like you can say without doubting, I can run through a troop, I can leap over a wall, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. However, in the midnight hour or just at work, when you don't have a broadcast playing in your ear and faith being infused into you or reading a book or whatever, that's when you need to do what the writer of Hebrews says, to hold fast. What does it mean to hold fast? Tighten your grip on it. Don't let go. No matter what you're seeing. Because that's what happened with Matthew 14 in Peter's story. Peter heard Jesus say, come out, walk on water with me. He stepped out of the boat and he started to walk. But he did not hold fast his confession. He began to waver because he looked at the waves and he sank. Jesus pulled him up and he said, why did you doubt? He wavered in his confession. He wavered. Why? Because he was phased by what he saw. If you allow what you see to monitor or dictate your, your confession, your confessor, confession will be wavering. It'll be up and down. It'll be based or determined on what you see rather than what God has said. Your confession, if you want it to be unwavering, it must be founded on the bedrock of the word. Because Situations and circumstances, they change. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But it's the word of the Lord that will endure forever. This word is unchangeable. It's as unchangeable as God himself. You, you see, and I've seen it. You look at Kenneth Hagin. Kenneth Hagin was preaching faith when he was 30. As strong as he was preaching faith when he was 60 and as strong as he was preaching faith until he went home to be with the Lord two weeks before he died, he was preaching a mega conference that he hosted with thousands of people coming in from all around the world. And he preached faith the same way throughout all his years. You know what it yielded for him? His unwavering confession, his unwavering, his decision to not let, because I'm sure he's prayed for people and he prayed healing over some people and they didn't make it. But he didn't let that waver his confession. He held fast to his confession without wavering because he judged God faithful who had promised. I'm not swayed by people's stories. I feel bad for certain people's stories. I may have empathy or sympathy for people, but I'm not swayed, nor is my faith influenced by other people's stories. My faith and my confession is influenced solely by the word of God. By the word of God. Wrong confession will produce wrong results. Right confession will produce right results. Number two, hindrance of faith. Wrong confession. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. The angel comes to him. Hey, Zechariah, your prayer's been heard. You've been praying for a child all these years. Well, I'm here, sent by God to tell you, you will conceive a son. You'll call his name John. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. John's, John's reply. How can that ever be? How could that be? How can that be? If you have nothing good to say, seal your lips. The Bible says even a fool is counted as wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. As Zacharias responds with words filled with unbelief. You know what Gabriel, the angel, the angel did? Zacharias, I am Gabriel. 
sent by God. I stand in the very presence of God. I was sent to you to speak these words. And indeed, they will come to pass in their time. But he says, for you, your lips will be shut until the fulfillment of these things. Why did Gabriel shut the lips of Zechariah? I'll tell you why. Gabriel understands the law of faith. If Zechariah came home and told Elizabeth, hey, Elizabeth, listen, I had a vision of an angel. He told me that you're going to conceive, but you know, look at how old you are. I don't even have the energy to get into bed with you anymore. You know, he could have easily have said that. And it would have totally derailed the miracle. The miracle would have never come to pass. Gabriel knew that. That's why he shut his lips so that he wouldn't even have opportunity to soil Elizabeth's faith. And perhaps even Zechariah, perhaps it was Elizabeth's faith that caught, got the angel to come to, uh, to Zechariah's and answer the prayer. And that's why Gabriel shut Zechariah's lips so that he would not soil Elizabeth's faith. Because we're, I'm telling you, whether you know this or not, whatever you hear in your environment is affecting your faith, intentionally or unintentionally. Everything you hear is affecting your faith. Everything you're hearing on a constant basis. If you think you can listen to music that talks about depression and talks about sorrow. If you listen to Linkin Park all the time, I used to listen to that when I was in the world and I was not a happy person. If you listen to Linkin Park, I've tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, doesn't even matter. If you listen to that and you think that you're gonna be a happy person, a faith person that's gonna endure to the end, I've got some rough news for you, my friend. Rude awakening for you. It ain't going to come to pass. You're not going to be a faith person. Your faith will be hindered. Your faith will be limited. And I'll tell you again, the only thing that limits what God can do in your life is your own faith. The only thing that can limit what God can do in your life is your ability to either believe or not believe God. Mark chapter 6, Jesus was limited by what he can accomplish at Nazareth because of their unbelief. It doesn't say because God did not will to heal anyone that day. It says their unbelief. Jesus marveled at their unbelief and he could heal. He could do no mighty works there except he healed, that he healed a few sick people that had minor ailments in the original Greek. He was limited in, I believe it's Psalm 78. It says they tested God, yea, they tested him and limited the Holy One of Israel. When you test God through your unbelief or your doubt, you limit the Holy One of Israel. Just like faith is expressed by our words, doubt is also expressed by our words. Monitor your confession because you will never rise higher than your level of confession. Matter of fact, you are ruled by your confession. You will either rise or fall to the level of your confession. Monitor your confession. Number three, hindrance to faith, humanistic hope. Humanistic hope. John, that was not my actual, <laughs> that's like my mocking voice. But thank you, I appreciate it. Take a bow. Humanistic hope. You can see me when I was 14 with emo hair. I tried so hard. <laughs> Thank God I never put eyeliner on or anything. Humanistic hope, enemy of faith number three. 
There is godly hope. Man, I really love doing these with you guys. You guys are a happy people. That's right, Jasmine. The word is sharper than a double-edged sword. So use the word combined with your faith and watch what it'll do for you. Great, great word. Power of life and death is in the tongue. Actually, uh, Adri I think it's Adriana that wrote that. And I'm not doing this to correct you. I'm just doing this because I was corrected by the Lord on this. The scripture actually reads, life and death is in the power of the tongue. So the power is not in the life and in the death. The power is in your tongue to release life and death. It actually makes a difference. But that's a great scripture. Abby, there will be no picture proof. That one picture could probably eliminate my entire ministry. All right, there is godly hope, humanistic hope, hindrance to faith number three. There is, God, <laughs> there is godly hope and there is natural hope or humanistic hope. I'm going to explain the two. Godly hope is a real thing. Hope is not, because I heard faith preachers talk about hope like it's a garbage thing or that hope itself is an enemy of faith. Hope itself is not an enemy of faith. Human hope or natural hope is an enemy of faith. I'm going to explain the two. Because the Bible says that God is the God of all hope. So hope can't be a bad thing if God is the God of it. The Bible says Abraham in hope believed, Romans chapter 4. So in hope, Abraham believed. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, now these three things abide forever. Love, uh, uh, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these three is love. So faith, hope, and love will abide forever. They're eternal things, characteristics of God and his kingdom. So hope's not a bad thing, but let me define the two. Godly hope defined. A desire that is generated. Hope that is godly is a desire that is generated, inspired, and ignited by hearing what God can do. Hope that is godly is a hope that is generated, inspired, and ignited by hearing what God can do. Hope can come. Godly hope can come from reading a testimony, hearing a testimony, seeing what God testified He's able to do in Scripture. That can produce hope. Hope, I said it before, is expectation. The hope of the righteous shall not be cut off. Other translations read, the expectation of the righteous cannot be cut off. So expectation is a good thing. Godly hope is a good thing. We've uh, talked about this in this week's broadcast on faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the things expected. Hope, expectation by itself cannot substantialize or bring to our material reality what you're believing God for. We need faith for that, and faith is simply, like I've said before, reading God's word, believing and acting on it. So hope by itself, just desiring or expecting God to do something without doing your part of the covenant will substantialize nothing, will bring nothing into our material reality. But when you expect God to do something, and in your hope or expectation, line up your action and confession with it, that's what produces the breakthrough. So hope is not to be confused with faith. Hope is simply carrying a God-given desire. But desire alone cannot get the job, the job done. It's faith that brings substance to the things hoped for. However, a desire to be healed begins by hope. Healing begins with hope. Everything that you're going to receive from God in the Bible begins with hope. Because you see it's accomplishable. It gives you hope. Everything in the Bible begins by hope. 
What God did with Job, that's a hopeful story. It's filled with hope because it shows you that no matter how bad things are, God can turn it around. However, there's keys that Job did. Job prayed for his friends. He didn't just hope for a turnaround. God said, pray for your friends and I'll restore your captivity or I'll restore the things that were stolen from you. Job prayed for his friends and the Lord restored Job so that he had double everything he had. So Job didn't just, just have hope for restoration. He had faith to actually receive that, that restoration. You don't just hope to be healed, although it begins with a hope. You now have Bible statements, statements of fact that prove that you can be healed. There are promises in the Bible for the future. So what, what's a godly hope? Godly hope is the very first thing that comes on you that gives you a drive to expect something great to happen to you. Godly hope, definition number two, or not definition number two, I'd say it's Another way godly hope manifests in us or is expressed through us is in our hope of the resurrection. We hope for the resurrection. A natural hope, and I'm going to get into it more in its definition, but a natural hope is pretty much like, I hope I get healed. I hope I get a promotion. They're empty and void of faith and power. I'm not talking about that. A godly hope is I hope for the resurrection. I'm not, well, I hope I get resurrected one day. That's not what I'm saying. I hope for the resurrection in that it's a futuristic event that's going to take place. I know it's going to take place and my hope is in light of it. And my life, I live in light of it. I hope, I have a hope for the blessed return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. I have a hope for heaven. I'm not hoping to make heaven, but my hope is set on heaven. So we're not hoping to make heaven. We're living in expectation of heaven. There are promises in the Bible that give us hope for the future. Heaven, the rapture, the second coming, battle of Armageddon, the final doom and destiny of Satan that he'll be bound forever. We have hope for these things. But listen to this. There are also, in the Bible, there's not just things for hope for the future, but there are statements of fact for the present. And that's where faith comes into play. My hope is that, my, my hope is that one day we're going to walk in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. When I read about healing, a hope came up into me that I now know I, now know I can expect healing from God because if he did it for one, he can do it for all. But then I read about certain statements of fact that show me that I don't just have to hope or wishfully think about healing or uh, endlessly expect it to happen but not really have any promise on God's end for him to do it for me. Now I have a statement of fact by his stripes. We are healed. So you see the two. So that's godly hope. And I wanted to show you how hope and um, faith come together to bring to pass your, uh, the promise, but let's get into natural hope defined. What is natural hope? Natural hope is a natural human emotion. This is what T.L. Osborne defines as natural hope. Natural human emotion that is without a basis for expectancy. Natural human emotion that is without a basis for expectancy. I hope one day I get healed. You aren't going to get healed. I hope one day I get the promotion. Imagine if you said, I hope one day I get saved. 
well, you're going to hell because you can't hope. The Bible says, doesn't say by grace through hope are you saved. It's by grace through faith are you saved. So this natural hope I'm talking about is an enemy of faith because faith is based on statements of fact found in the Bible. You know, when you read the epistles, especially Paul's epistles, Paul so structured his epistles that they're written almost in legal format. P Paul's epistles are not necessarily, uh, matter of fact, they're not a list of promises that God will do these things. Paul's epistles are actually a list of statements of fact. It's like when you read a person's will. If you had a loved one that died and they left a will for the family and you got into a conference room and you began to read this will and in the will it says grandpa left his 77 Trans Am for you or grandpa left that home that he had in Burlington, Vermont, a nice cabin in the woods for you. You wouldn't take the will and say, oh, man, I just, I hope that I get that that house in Burlington, Vermont, or that 77 Trans Am, you wouldn't take the will and say, man, I just wish I had that. You would take it as I legally own that. Paul writes his letters not as things you can hope for and just leave it in God's hands whether he'll do it for you. He writes it as a legal document, legal documentation of what God in Christ has left you in his will. Hallelujah. Their statement of facts. These things belong to you. And Jesus is our attorney to enforce them for us. Hallelujah. He's not only the one who died to leave us this will. He lives again and he's the enforcer. He's our attorney to enforce this will in our life. So natural, natural hope, humanistic hope, this hope that is empty and void of faith and power, it's, it's actually just complaining that is disguised or camouflaged in religiosity. It is complaining disguised in religiosity. How many of you know, you know, we can hope for the best outcome, but it's in God's hands. No, I don't just hope for the best outcome. I have a statement of fact that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Hallelujah. Number four, enemy of faith. Praying for faith is an enemy of faith. As much as people may be sincere in praying for faith, I've been praying for faith. They're very sincere and their heart is there. It's simply not the structure that scripture gives us in order for us to grow our faith. It is not the scriptural method of growing our faith. Many people pray for faith for two reasons. One, they either don't understand how faith comes, and we talked about that on Tuesday at length on how faith grows, comes by hearing the word of God it comes by actually doing the word of God and it comes by what was uh number th number three faith comes by hearing the word of God faith comes by doing the word of God and faith comes by I forget number three but you can go back to Tuesday's broadcast and learn that so people pray for faith because they have one of two reasons. One, they don't understand how faith comes. Or two, they're too lazy to actually go through the discipline of reading the word of God for themselves. And so they're always trying to find shortcuts. And shortcut people get cut short from God's power. Shortcut people, people that are always trying to weasel themselves in, are always cut short of the power of God. So people, here's what I'm going to tell you. 
Whenever you feel like praying for faith, and this I got from T.L. Osborne, and I think, I think A.J. Bible asked me where the quote came from. It's in Healing the Sick by T.L. Osborne. Here's another prayer, or here's a way T.L. Osborne says you can pray when you pray about the topic or subject of faith. So instead of saying, because remember, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, increase our faith. What did Jesus reply? He didn't say, pray and your faith shall increase. He actually responded in Matthew 17, 20. He says, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will say to this mount or this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be cast away and it will obey you and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus says, if you lack faith and you want to increase your faith, one of the ways you can do that is that you start using the faith that you have. Notice how they didn't say, we have no faith, please give us faith. They said, increase our faith, which shows that they knew they had some level of faith. Jesus said, if you want to develop that faith, start to use it because your faith is like a muscle and the more you use it, the more it grows. So when the disciples prayed to Jesus and said, increase our faith, he says, you can't pray for that. Start using your faith. So instead of saying, Lord, increase our faith, here's how you can pray for faith. Teal Osborne says, this is the way you should pray. Father... And I love this. Father, and you should pray this every time you crack this Bible open. Father, help me to be convicted that you meant what you said when you made these promises. That's a better way to pray when talking about faith. You want your faith to grow? Father, help me. You should pray this with me right now. Say this out loud. Say, Father, help me to be convicted that you meant what you said when you made these promises. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 17, Paul says, Pray to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of glory, that He may give you the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, or wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding would be flooded with light. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and understanding the word of God. So if there's a faith deficiency, it's because you're deficient in your understanding of the word of God. But the more your understanding of the covenant of God and God's ways, the more your faith grows. So Paul says, pray that the spirit of wisdom and understanding would open up your eyes and have your heart flooded with more understanding of the word of God. Because the more your heart is filled with understanding, the more your, your heart will be filled with genuine, authentic Bible faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So number four hindrance to, prayer is, uh, to faith is praying for faith. You cannot pray for faith, but you can pray a prayer that will help you in developing your own faith as you read the word of God. And that is, God, give me the spirit of wisdom and understanding that my eyes would be flooded with light so that I might see the surpassing greatness of your power towards us who believe. Number five, hindrance to faith. Mental assent over revelation faith. Mental assent is simply agreeing with the word, testifying that it is indeed true and inspired. Even the demons carry this level of faith. The demons believe and they tremble. Just believing that the word of God is true. I, you know, yeah, I, I know what's in there. Oh yeah, all scriptures given by God, inspired by God. Oh, if the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, it doesn't settle it. Because mental assent never provokes action. Mental assent is all head knowledge of the word. And there's a lot of fat Christians, fat-headed Christians. A lot of fat-headed Christians. They know a lot about the word. 
But until the word takes the elevator from your mind down to your heart, it never becomes revelation faith. There's mental ascent, and then there's revelation faith. Revelation faith is what Romans 10, 17 says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the rhema of, word, of the word, the rhema of God. What's rhema? John 6, 63, Jesus describes it. He says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The rhema of God's word is the quickened word. It's not just I have head knowledge of it. That thing took the elevator down from my mind into my heart and it's been quickened. It's been brought to life. Yesterday I gave that revelation that Bishop Oyedepo had in reading his book, Exploits of Faith. And uh, I read it yesterday in that book and I'd read it before, but that thing yesterday got quickened into my spirit when he talks about all things were made by the word and without the word, nothing was made. And so since everything was made by the word, then the word of God itself carries the power to influence or change everything in life. Sick bodies can be healed by the word because the body itself was made by the word. And so what the word has made, the word also carries the power to change its, its reality. Hallelujah. And so when I read that yesterday, it got quick. I had read it before. I had read that book probably four or five times already. But yesterday it got seared. That's what it means to have the word quickened in your heart. Literally, it, like just imagine a farmer taking that branding machine and searing the cow. That cow is forever marked. You can have a tattoo erased. You can have a tattoo taken away. You can have a tattoo go through the laser treatment. But when something is seared into you, that thing ain't leaving you. It's there forever. Unless you cut your arm off, that thing's on you. And there's people who sear their bodies with emblems and logos or ideas they have, art. I don't recommend it. When something is quickened in your spirit and faith comes alive, it's when... The Holy Spirit sears that thing into you. Remember Jesus told Peter, flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you. That's what I'm talking about uh, when I speak of mental ascent compared to revelation knowledge of the Word of God. Flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven has opened your eyes, Peter, to see it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Revelation knowledge of the Word of God is what produces the Bible faith that produces action. Revelation knowledge of the Word of God is what produces the drive and the carrier. See, people who just have mental ascent, they are sitters. They wait. I'm just waiting on God. Wait, you're going to wait all you want. When the Bible says we are to wait on the Lord, it doesn't mean to be patient and twiddle your thumbs while you do nothing. When the Bible says wait on the Lord, it literally means, in the original Hebrew, to wait on God as like a server would do at a restaurant in waiting on your table. You're active. You're doing something. Revelation knowledge of the word of God is what brings that drive, that momentum, that excitement to serve God in what he's commanded you to do in full expectation that he's faithful to do what he and he alone can do. Nehemiah had not mental assent. Mental ascent is, Nehemiah, if he had mental ascent, he would have said, how many of you know God can rebuild those walls of Jerusalem if he wants to? Oh, hallelujah. Nehemiah didn't just have mental ascent. Nehemiah had revelation faith, revelation knowledge, the rhema knowledge. 
Because Nehemiah, when he heard the walls had been broken down, he fasted and prayed, and he went before the king, and he, he requested that he go back to Jerusalem with a delegate of troops so that he can begin the process of rebuilding the walls. Revelation faith will always stir on action. Hallelujah. Number six, hindrance to faith. Not having a proper understanding of righteousness. This is huge, huge. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Not having a proper understanding of righteousness and what it means to be righteous. Carrying a sin consciousness or a sin-seared mindset. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness. Matter of fact, let's read from verse 16. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. This is the covenant that we're in right now. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now there, where there is remission of sins, there's no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter by the, to the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having high priests over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When you carry a sin conscience, you will not have a full assurance of faith. Hebrews here says, the full assurance of faith that we have in drawing near to God comes from our understanding that our heart has been cleansed from an evil conscience or a sin-seared mindset. We read here in Hebrews 10, and verse 17, God said, their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. There's a song by Charity Gale, which by the way, if you don't listen to Charity Gale, I'd recommend it. She's phenomenally anointed. She is, she is a very good singer, not just a good singer. She, she carries weight on the words that she sings. She wrote a song called, I believe she wrote it, but she sings it called Cleansed. And it's honestly one of the best songs you can sing over yourself. Because it talks about how you're forgiven. You've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You're now made holy in his sight. The Bible says you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. If you still think of yourself as some old wretched deprived sinner, a good for nothing guy or a good for nothing girl that God's merely tolerating in life, you're not going to live that. You're not going to have that living faith. You're not going to carry that vibrant faith. You know, it's interesting to me because in the Gospels, you see the disciples having failure at certain moments in casting out demons and in operating their faith. Matthew 14, we said it before, Peter sinks. He had little faith. When they began to be scared because the boat was being run over by water, Jesus rebuked them and they said, how is it you have no faith? You see that there's this limitation in how much they could use their faith and the results that their faith can yield as such because, and I believe it, I think that their faith failures can be tied in to their lack of understanding 
as to what Jesus would ultimately have come to do, which was to wash away all their sins. Their faith had limitations. You see it. Mark 9, they tried to cast a demon out. Jesus said, your lack of faith couldn't bring it to pass. And I believe that their faith was limited because they didn't have a true understanding of the gospel and what Jesus was coming to do. A matter of fact, I know they didn't have a true understanding because in Luke 24, he makes it very clear to them. He says, you guys are hard of heart and slow to hear and believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The Son of Man came to suffer so that remission of sin can be given to all who believe. Remission of sin. Talked about this in another broadcast. There's remission of sin and then there's just atonement of sin. We're not just atoned for, we have remission of sin. What is remission? In cancer clinics, they have uh, people specifically with like blood problems, leukemia. They go through remission, but there's different types of remission. There's regular remission where the cancer goes away, specifically in leukemia. The cancerous cells go away, but the body still remembers that it had cancer and the cancer can come back. But then there's something called molecular remission. Molecular remission is when uh, the body is like reset. This happens when a bone marrow transplant is had. When the bone marrow from one healthy vessel gets into a vessel who had leukemia or blood cancer, the bone marrow wherein all the blood is produced begins to produce new blood and it fools your system. It actually changes your DNA on a molecular level in fooling your system that you never even had blood cancer in the first place and so your body no longer produces cancerous blood cells anymore. Hallelujah. We don't just have atonement. We don't have regular remission. We have molecular remission. Jesus has removed every sign, every trace that we have ever even sinned in the first place. It's like what Jesus came to do, totally erase from God's memory what Adam ever even did. Hallelujah. We are justified by faith. Justified we never sinned. Just if we had never sinned. You have a brand new slate. You are cleansed. The Bible says, such were some of you. Stop saying, eh, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a recovering this. You've been recovering for 18 years. It's about time you stop saying, I'm a recovering this and I'm a recovering that. And you start saying, such were some of us. We were adulterers. We are idolaters. We were fornicators. We were full of anger. We were full of jealousy. We were full of immorality. We were all those things. We were full of witchcraft. We were bound by sin. Such were some of us, but we have now been washed, sanctified, justified, and cleansed by the Spirit of the Lord and by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm no longer a sinner. I've been saved by grace. I am now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Everything has become new. Understand hindrance of faith. Number six is not understanding your righteousness in Christ. People have a misconception of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to forgive us our sins. No, he didn't just come to forgive you of your sins. If all Jesus did was come to forgive you of your sins, you'd still go to hell. You had to be born again. Jesus said, unless you're born by water or by spirit, born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. He didn't just come to forgive you of your sins. He came to give you a new creation. He came 
to impart into you his righteousness, his nature, his very own DNA. I'm not what I used to be. I'm a new creation created in Christ Jesus. I've put off the old man and its lusts and its deceit and its corruption. And I've put on the new man. I'm now a partaker of the divine nature of God. I've escaped the corruption that is in this world. And I have now come in to the incorruptible city of the living God. I've come to Mount Zion. Hallelujah. So if you don't understand that, you're not going to have faith to cast out a demon. You're going to say, I adjure you in the name of Jesus. Come out of him. The demon's going to come back. Hey, you're just an old wretched sinner. I know. <laughs> Any devil, the devil could say, you think I'm going to obey you, TJ, after what you did in your past? What past? Oh, you want to talk about past demons? You want to talk about your past? All throughout history, you've messed up. Devils never successfully ever orchestrated a successful attack against the people of God. Ask Haman how that turned out when he turned against Esther and the Jews. The devil's a glorified loser. Failure. Hardwired for failure. You want to talk about past? My past is under the blood. See, when you understand your righteousness and what the blood of Jesus did, there's a boldness that comes by you. A boldness to act on your faith. You're not insecure. Insecurity will crush your faith. I'm not insecure. I've got bold faith. I've got a true assurance of faith. I'm not... I'm not being belittled. I'm not going to be backed down by accusations of my past. The accuser of the brethren has been cast out. I've got a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Hallelujah. Woo. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, everyone that's watching me right now, whatever accusations that have bombarded your mind, whatever devil that has lied to you, constantly bringing up your past, saying you're no different now than what you used to be, your ears become deafened to the voice of Satan from this day onward. And I pray your ears come open to what the voice of God says concerning you in Scripture. That you are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. That you are holy, the Bible says, without blemish in His sight. You've put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when the prodigal son came back home and the father said, put on him the best robe? That's being clothed with Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. Hallelujah. I've not been clothed with, you know, the gospel is not God renovating you so that you're a little better than what you old you used to be. The gospel is the old you is gone. You've been clothed with Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a new you. The gospel is I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's now Christ that lives in me. When you carry this proper understanding of righteousness, your faith is going to go to a whole new level. And I'm telling you, specifically for people that are watching me that are sick right now, many times, this understanding of this one simple truth is what stands between a sick person and their healing. You've been declared righteous. God has accepted you. And because you're now accepted in the beloved and in the kingdom of God, everything that pertains to his kingdom is rightfully yours. Oh God, I don't know if I'm worthy to say this. You are you're not worthy by your own works. You're worthy by his works. By, the Bible says not by works of righteousness, but by his mercy, he regenerated us. You weren't worthy to get saved in the first place. Well, if you couldn't accomplish the least of this, if you couldn't even get saved without Jesus and his righteousness and, and what he did, then everything else that Jesus, if God didn't spare Jesus, he won't spare anything else is what I'm trying to say. And number seven, I'm going to finish with this hindrance to faith. Keeping poor company. I don't mean poor people. I mean terrible company. Company that is not faith building, but faith destroying. There are faith destroying people out there. 
Proverbs 13, 21, the Bible says that he that walks with the wise will be wise. He that is the companion of a fool will be destroyed. Will be destroyed. You hang around people that are just, they just love to spew out doubt from their mouth. You'll be a doubt-filled person. Forbes let out a magazine years ago that said you are the product of your five closest friends. What's your inner circle look like? Take a tally of who you closely associate with. I'm not saying you never talk to atheists again. I'm saying who's your inner circle? Even Jesus had a tight inner circle beyond the disciples, the 12. He had three, Peter, James, and John. When he went into Jairus' daughter, uh, daughter's room to raise her from the dead, he didn't even bring in the other nine. He brought in only the three and, his, and her mother and father. And he put out, the Bible says he actually kicked out all the mourners and all the doubters. Those that were scoffing at Jesus, mocking him, saying the child's dead, leave her alone. Haven't you, haven't you seen Jairus has gone through enough? Leave him alone. Stop giving him this false hope. The Bible says Jesus put them all outside. Put them all out. You got to boot them out of your house. You got to boot them out of your house of influence. You'll never rise to a high level of faith when you surround yourself with people that are not intent on growing their faith. And there are people like that. And not just in the world, people that might sit next to you on Sunday morning. Well, I know the Bible says that, but you know, you have to use wisdom. When you, what higher wisdom is there beyond the Word of God? There's no higher wisdom. Beware of people that say, well, I know the Word of God says that, but. Boot the butts out of your life. Get them out. Bible says, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company will corrupt good faith. Bad company will corrupt good conscience. Bad company will corrupt sincere, pure faith. If I, the faith level that I have right now, if I got around some people and I just, I just totally branched off the friends I have right now and I got around different friends that are not faith people within two years, if that, you would see a different TJ. If I hung around people that don't believe in divine healing, Within two years, I, they would have talked me out of it. Even though the Bible is very clear of it, I would have been talked out of it. Dag Heward Mills talks about in his book that he wrote on faith. He says that because I came from a medical community and I was very connected to it, entering into the ministry, I had a hard time praying for the sick because I knew too much. I knew too much about sickness and disease. And I only heard about the doctor's opinions on it. And it, it like strangled strangulated my faith so that it didn't produce anything. There are people that the devil will see it to it that they get around you so that they strangle your faith. Remember, the tares and the seed, the tares and the wheat. Bible says he sowed good seed and tares began to spring up. The devil is going to have people spring up out of your life. Remember, Jesus said the seed is the good seed of the kingdom, and they're the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the devil, which means not everyone on this earth has good intentions. Some people are literally allied with hell. They're sons of the devil, sons of Belial. They're tares amongst the wheat, and they're there with assignment. Remember, Jesus said the seed sprouts and grows, but the Thorns come in and choke the word so that it becomes unfruitful. The devil wants to make you unfaithful so you become unfruitful. And in being unfruitful, you become useless. You become useless. Even Paul broke company with John Mark. 
John Mark, he became unfruitful. He was complaining about how he missed home. You can read this in the book of Acts. And he went back. He left John Mark's. Uh, Paul said to John Mark, I don't even want him to travel with me. And he took on a new companion. He brought Silas with him, someone that was going to encourage him. So that gives you a hint on something. Don't just break away from the John Marks. Get the Silases. Get around the Silases. Don't be like an isolate person that just is, you know, on an island of your own. And you don't talk to anybody. Don't be a loner in the body of Christ. You need to be encouraged. Iron sharpens iron. But find someone who's sharper than you, or at least as sharp as you, so that you can sharpen each other, so that you're not a dull blade going around. Don't just boot out the John Marks. Invite the Silases into your life. Remember, it was Paul and Silas at the midnight hour in that prison cell that they, by faith, brought an earthquake into that prison cell so that their shackles and chains broke off. He had a faith person. Hey, Silas, you want to believe with me to break out of this, this prison cell? Silas didn't say, well, you know, I'm kind of missing home right now. I can't believe I joined with you. Oh, I wish I wasn't here. No. Yeah, sure, Paul. Let's do it. I have a friend. I'm going to see him in April. Pastor Oscar Sosa out in Vancouver, one of my closest friends. Never called him and him discouraged me. Never. Never has I, have I ever called him and him discouraged me. Never have I called him and given him like something I felt the Lord was telling me to do and him just say, you know, that's nice and all, but you ever hear of what brother so-and-so, he tried that, didn't work for him. Never. Never have I called him and said, hey, would you believe God with me? Would you believe with me on this? Would, can you agree with me on this in this point of prayer? And him say, you know, we can pray, but you know what? We got to leave the outcome to God and we don't know how. No, never. Always encouraged me. Always sharpened me. I know he's someone I can call at any time and he's never going to vomit on my dream. He'll always encourage me. And I do the same for him. He doesn't call me. You know, we're going to Vancouver in, in, um, in April for the Easter service and we're going to do a big bash. I mean, we're going we're gonna to shake the place up. He just planted a church there and they're quickly growing. We're going there in April and... Uh, He's telling me about everything he wants to do and the vision of how many people he wants in the building. You don't hear me saying, well, Oscar, you know, that, that's, that's quite a high objective you have there. Seems unrealistic. Why don't you set more realistic goals? Never done that. Absolutely. He has a vision. He has a vision. He wants to put up a billboard in Vancouver, uh, you know, to announce the meetings. I'm not just, oh, that's a great idea, you know. I'm going to send him money to do that. I'm not just going to... I encourage the guy. He encourages me. Iron sharpens iron. Boot the naysayers, the doubt-filled, negative influences out of your life. And ask God, if you don't have them now, ask God to draw to you people of faith that will encourage you. That when men say it's impossible, they'll be saying, no, if God's on your side... You can by all means obtain the promise. The Lord is on, on your side. The Lord's your helper, your helper. What can man do to you? The Lord is your light and your salvation. If with them is the arm of flesh, they can't do anything to hurt you. With us is the arm of God to fight our battles. And God will honor that prayer and bring people your way that will fit that position. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I feel to pray right now. Father, in Jesus' name, 
I thank you for the spirit of faith that has come on the people of God that have tuned into this broadcast this week. Thank you that they'll never be the same again. Thank you that their faith is at all time high. I thank you that you're giving them grace to identify whatever obstacle that they've, that, that, has, uh, that I've talked about today that may be the enemy that they're facing in their own faith walk. That you've identified it in their life today. And I thank you, Lord, for the grace and empowerment, spiritual empowerment, to neutralize that enemy and that hindrance and to overcome it. Thank you, Lord, that today they're going to a whole new level of faith in Jesus' name. That every enemy of faith, every obstacle of faith is being taken out of the way. And that from today, they will have unhindered flow of the gift of faith in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you that you're raising up Joshua and Caleb's in this generation. Those that carry another spirit who will do all your will. People of faith that are moving people, that aren't sitting down, that, aren't, that don't gravitate to comfort, but they move by conviction in Jesus' name. I thank you, Lord. I feel it right now, right now, like a coin dropping in to a vending machine. I see the gift of faith, God dropping the gift of faith into your heart in Jesus' mighty name. I see fresh oil coming over you, reinvigorating your faith in Jesus' mighty name. I see you rising up to becoming a general of the faith in your generation. People, just like before, I got saved. Nobody wanted my opinion. Nobody wanted my help. But when I got saved and started to learn this lesson on faith and absorb the word of faith message in the Bible, that now people have come to me to seek counsel and help and the word of God from my mouth. From today, even people in your family that didn't want anything to do with you, you were seen as like an unreliable person or like the runt of your family who cared about your opinion. Nobody cared. From today, as this faith rises up in you, you'll be a pillar in your family. You'll be a pillar in your home. You'll be a general of faith in your generation. People will come and lean on you when they need help. Hallelujah. If you receive that, type amen in the chat. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. If you're watching right now and you've never given your life to Jesus, do it right now. If you have given your life to Jesus, but you want to rededicate your life today, you've gone lukewarm and you want to be set on fire again for God, take this step of faith with me today. Pray this with me. Say these words out of your mouth. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I believe you raised Jesus from the dead. I confess Jesus is Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Where I was weak, make me strong. I will live for you and I will endure to the end. I'm a new creation. Today, I am saved. I am healed. I am whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
If you prayed that prayer, I want you to get in touch with me. Salvationnow.ca, the first link that pops up. I just got saved. Click that link. Follow it. Fill out the form. I want to hear from you, and I want to get something to you, a package shipped to your home free of charge, a Bible and some reading material in order to welcome you into the family of God and uh, in order to set you up with uh, a good Bible and some reading material that's going to greatly help you in advancing in this life of faith. I want to plug you into a good Bible-believing church. So get uh, your information to me on my website, salvationnow.ca. First link that pops up, I just got saved. Hallelujah. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.